This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Rose Levy Barenbaum discusses the baking Bible. Then PW News editor Claire Swanson goes deeper into the world of cookbooks. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. Fiction. Fiction. We have a new number two, three, four, and five. This is pretty exciting. Um, a lot of a lot of shake up there. Um, at number two is a novella. This does not happen very often. No. Um, it's a novella that was uh, published in hardcover. Um, mm-hmm. So it goes on our hardcover fiction list, and it's by Patrick Rothfuss. It's called The Slow Regard of Silent Things. Rothfuss is an ep- epic fantasy author. Um, this ties into his uh, King Killer Chronicles, and uh, it, it focuses on one particular character who a lot of people wanted to see more of, and so he took her out of the books. And mm-hmm. I mean, these are huge books, usually, right. like big doorstopper epic fantasies so to see something like this that's uh you know 159 pages uh, from from rothfuss quite a departure sure um and uh, it's about quite an interesting character so obviously he's got a lot of fans and they were perfectly happy to go out there and snap this one up um even you know with its price tag of 1895 uh, that was uh he sold nearly 30,000 copies of that little novella that's pretty amazing. And I loved how it, it's called a novella at 150-some-odd pages. Well... No, I'm, no, for him. But yes. Because he's yes. Right, cause anyone right. else, you know, like, you know, close to... That's closer to a, a novel size for... Yeah, more or less. 200. Yeah. yeah. And, um, 200. But, you know, by anyone else's standards, that yeah, might be a short novel. Yeah. Um, by Rothfuss's standards, it's a short story. Right. So, <laughs> right. Um, so it's nice to get these, these little uh, interstitial stories. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of romance writers doing this, too. Like, you'll get novellas in a, or novels in a series, and then they'll do short stories or novellas um, that are digital only, mm-hmm. for example. This one, uh, it's, it's rare to see them actually come out in print, and it's it's certainly rarer still to see them on the bestseller list. So that's at number two. Yeah, that is pretty impressive, I have to say. Um, we have uh, more speculative fiction on the list. Also, Prince Lestat by Anne Rice is at number three. Um, this is a very, very long-awaited latest book in uh, the series. And uh, her last book in, in the series was Blood Canticle in 2003. I was uh, The PW Review delicately calls it poorly received. Mm. Uh, not Not a lot of good things said about it oh, here wow. and there. Right. So um, it was refreshing to see that uh, this this one is uh, considerably better. And, um, you know, it's, it continues the, the story of Rice's vampire mythos, which made her famous. And uh, our review says that Rice fills the dense story with plenty of deliciously gory mythology. But many of the info dumps are bone dry. And Lestat's journey from brat to prince does fit his personality, but his attitude is irritating, even during the book's fascinating climax. 
So if, if you like wow. those bad boys, I, you might sure. be into this one. <laughs> and uh, at number three, we have Havana Storm by Clive Cussler. Uh, this is a, the, the latest Dirk Pitt novel. I was reading these books when I was growing up. Um, they've been around for 40 years. It's a very, very long-running series. Yes. Uh, this is the 23rd book, uh, and this is the sixth one co-authored with Cussler's son, who shares a name with his hero, Dirk Cussler. So... Um, I I uh, I can only imagine what it's like to grow up being named after one of your dad's protagonists. And I actually <laughs> never knew that his son was writing these books. Yeah, they've been. Uh, this yeah. is the sixth one that oh, wow. uh, Dirk Cussler has co-authored with with <laughs> Clive Cussler, um, and uh, and so this is uh, you know there there's always some interesting international aspect, uh, an underwater aspect to this. Uh, you know, lots of exciting stuff happening in mm-hmm. scuba suits, uh, lots of lots of daring do, and. Uh, you know, there are plenty of subplots involving venal Cuban politicians, the release of poisonous mercury from the sea bottom, uranium ore going to North Korea, and a fabulous Aztec treasure. Uh, and, you know, Kessler has plenty of other series, but um, this this one really has staying power. Mm. So that's uh, that's down the list. Number four um, sold a very respectable 25,000 copies. In its first week out, and at number five is Pegasus by Danielle Steele. This is uh, you know, something of a departure from all that action and adventure. Uh, this is a historical novel. Steele made her name obviously writing romance novels, and now does what's called women's fiction or romantic fiction, mm-hmm. fiction with romantic elements. Not not so much emphasis on building a specific central relationship, um, much more about family, particularly. Right. Uh, and this is a, a novel set around World War Two, a family saga. Um, that spans generations and continents. Uh, so it, in some ways, it's the same scope right. as the Kessler novel, but a very different approach. Oh, sure. So uh, that's it. That's at number five is Pegasus. So you wanted to uh, make this a special cookbooks edition of Publishers Weekly Radio. And, yes. Uh, I'm always in favor <laughs> of this. So tell me what's going on on our cookbooks list. Well, you know, before I get to that, I just want to briefly just talk about the nonfiction list. Oh, sure. Because that's going to go right into the cookbook list. Okay. With our Number you have one, a plan. which um, yes, but um, so as 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 we we've, we've said, uh, Rose uh, Levy Barenbaum is going to be our guest, and then Clara Swanson, who has recently taken over our newsletter, Cooking the Books. Uh, is going to talk with us about uh, trends in cookbooks, and we'll probably talk about our best books, PW's best books in cookbooks. But before we get to that, just really quick, um, Amy Poehler, uh, comedian, uh, uh, book, Yes, Please, uh, is at number four, debuts at number four, having sold 37,000 copies last week. Um, and then we have uh, Glenn Beck, whenever he has a book. Uh, Always right to the top of the list. Exactly. Dreamers and Deceivers, True Stories of the Heroes and Villains Who Made America. And at number eight, we have Derek Jeter, Unfiltered. Um, and this is his memoir. comes in at number eight. So that's, that's, that's what we have right there. But looking at number one, we actually have a cookbook at number one on oh, the nonfiction exciting. list. And uh, it's no surprise because whenever Ina Garden um, mm. has a uh, – The Barefoot Contessa has a cookbook. It jumps to the top of every list. This one uh, sold 132,000 copies last week. So wow, it's huge. It's also one book that we've uh, – that, that we picked for our uh, best – one of our – 
I think we had five cookbooks uh, of the year. Um, and this is called Make It Ahead, a Barefoot Contessa cookbook. And it's all about making things ahead for uh, either family dinners or uh, parties. Mm-hmm. Um, very sensible book. And uh, I think a lot of people will find it so too, uh, especially a lot of those who bought it. <laughs> so she's obviously at the top of the uh, cookbook list. Mm-hmm. We have Otto Lenge, who we talked bef- about before, who had a surprise bestseller two years ago and he follows that up with plenty more we have uh at number five rose levy barenbaum with oh, a baking exciting. bottle baking bible exactly yep and then another baking book uh dory greenspan uh baking chamois and that is one that we picked for our best books uh, of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, as if we're going in the same theme of going from baking to French, we have Mimi Thorison, A Kitchen in France. Uh, and this is a woman who moved to France and is cooking there with her husband and her children. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe she had a blog uh, that uh, turned into a book, just like two other books on our um, list the skinny taste cookbook uh, which is at number two and at number three thug kitchen we've which we've talked about mm-hmm. so we're still seeing a little bit of that and then uh, I know I'm jumping around just a little bit uh, just looking a little bit further down uh, we have at number 15 Sever magazine uh, the new classics cookbook uh, this the Sever I'm sorry Sever cookbook from Sever magazine James Osland who's the uh, former editor-in-chief he's since moved on to um, uh, Rodale uh, to head up a new line of magazines, healthy magazines, but uh, this is the book he edited, and this is another one uh, that seems to land on the list whenever it comes out. Uh, it's one of the uh, sure. beautifully, uh, you know, the, the Sever magazine, beautiful, mm-hmm. um, looking at food as culture so much of the time. So this has this is basically our uh, top ten plus list. That we have here, so it's it's pretty interesting, and we're going to be seeing more and more of these sold as the uh, holiday seasons approach. Especially, I think with baking books, is going to be huge. And and just especially looking at the the bestseller list, I don't want to quote specific numbers, um, but I think it's safe to say Ina Garten blows them all away. Yeah. It, you know, you, you yeah. go from her at the top of the list with 132,000 copies right. sold down to the next one, which is. A few thousand, yeah. Right. From six digits yeah, sure. to four is a pretty stunning. Yeah. It, so. Oh, it is. It is. And and I think um, uh, you have the list in front of you. Even on the nonfiction list, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, uh, absolutely. It's even selling well above uh, the number two spot. Yeah, she's uh, again. She's at one hundred thirty-two thousand, and then Bill O'Reilly's Killing Patton is still there um, after six weeks on the list, and it's still selling very well. It sold fifty-two thousand yeah, copies in its sixth week, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, but Anna Garten still kind of knocks it out of the park. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. good for her. So. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rose Levy Barenbaum tells us a few baking secrets from her latest cookbook. We'll be right back. This is Joyce Carol Oates, editor of Prison Noir, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Rose Levy-Berenbaum in the office with us. Her new book is The Baking Bible. Hello, Rose. So glad you could join us. Hi, Mark and Rose. Hi, Rose. It's so great to have you <laughs> here. a lot of roses. I never have another Rose to talk to. This is so perfect. It, it's, it's a real treat for me, too. So um, you've, you've written a whole bunch of, of Bibles, as mm-hmm. it were, uh, about every possible type of baked goods about cakes and uh, breads and every other thing and now you have the baking bible is this the one bible to rule them all (laughs) well it doesn't replace the other ones because the other ones have single subjects so i go more into depth of explaining how ingredients work and things like that Mm -hmm. but this one is the one since i did each subject that I revisited after five years between books, new things came about, and in addition to that, I tweaked old things, so it's a combination, but it includes every subject I think of baking, even candy making and preserving to a point. So how much overlap is there um, recipe-wise, particularly like if if people already have all the rest of your books, as I'm sure many do, um, does this add on top of that, or is it all old No, it's pretty much... Pretty much new stuff. I mm-hmm. would say maybe 90%. Wow. Uh, for example, wow. one thing that was a bit of an overlap was my favorite pie crust. I had about 20 pie crusts in the Pie and Pastry Bible. But what one I always return to is the cream cheese flaky pie crust. But since the Pastry Bible, I discovered that heavy cream makes a better crust and a few little tweaks about how to roll and things like that. So now I would go to this recipe instead of the Pastry Bible. I see. Oh, right. But then there's a lot of totally new things, like on the cover, the pastry that's called the Queen Amon. Mm-hmm. I think of it as the Queen of Pastry, because if you look at the spelling, K-O-U-I-G-N, you'd never pronounce it that way. I only learned how to pronounce it about a month ago, and the book went to press about six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, uh, this is now the Queen of Baking Books, then. <laughs> Well, it's the queen of pastry. I call it the, this is the the queen of man versus the cronut. You know, people outside of New York have never even heard of a cronut, but they're both the hot new pastries. So what are some of the surprise recipes you, you found in there? I mean, you've, it seems like you've baked everything, but mm. how do you come up with something new? And what were some of the ones that you've came across and you said, this is, this is the, something I have to put in the book? Well, that's a difficult question, Mark, because... You know, sometimes I don't even remember. I have so many recipes in my repertoire, and that's why I'm so glad that the site called Eat Your Cakes decided to index not only every recipe in every book, but every recipe I've ever published in magazines and newspapers. Because who can... Wow. I mean, this is my 10th book, you know, mm-hmm. so you can imagine. Right. But off the top of my head, the first thing that pops into it is, well, two things. One is the red velvet rose, and people think I sculpted it. It's on the back of the book. Um, it's because... It uses the Nordicware pan that's shaped like a fluted tube pan that's shaped like a rose. So oh when gosh. people say, oh, my God, I could never do that, I said, just buy the pan. It does it for you. <laughs> and then there is the golden Fleming mm-hmm. that was dedicated to Renee Fleming. And I'm mm-hmm. a great opera lover. Mm-hmm. And I, if I could have had a choice in life, I probably would have been an opera singer. <laughs> but instead, I'm a cake baker. So I dedicated two of my cakes to opera singers. And the Renee Fleming cake is a, a lemon chiffon. That doesn't have a centered tube, so it was a great challenge to mm-hmm. be able to make a cake that would 
be a solid cake. Mm-hmm. And I say that it's like a bird ready to take flight, like her voice. And nice. I'm so glad that just coincidentally this year, she sang for the Super Bowl. She sang the national anthem. Right. So now people, who, not everybody loves opera. And she also sings popular songs. But now that really put her on the map, and it will make sense to people why that cake was dedicated to her. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So um, how, how many of the... Uh, tips and tricks in here are it sounds like they're very equipment based in some ways you were talking about different techniques for rolling and this particular pan um, does does someone have to have an enormous well-equipped mm. kitchen to follow along that's a good question I, I used to teach I had a cooking school and one of my students from Japan said I have to question my commitment to baking if I have to have all this arsenal of equipment because in Japan everybody has tiny kitchens very small kitchens and they're lucky right. that they, if they even have an oven so uh, I realized that it's fun to have to be equipment centric mm-hmm. I, I find equipment delightful and I have this new thing that's called a crackum egg thing that where it's, it's only seven dollars and it doesn't take up much room but you can crack an egg so easily without ever breaking the yolk and no mess it's something that I found on Google and I wrote to the guy and I said if this is as good as I think it will be I'll help you do the kickstart to fund it because I didn't want it to disappear but and to answer your question more directly you can do with very little equipment in fact a lot of people don't even have rolling pins. They use wine bottles. Hmm. Really? I would rather do have a rolling pin personally, yeah, right, but right. you know, you don't, it's a luxury to have the specialty equipment. Mm-hmm. And if people are collectors, they'll want to have it. But most of the things in this book, I would say, except for a specialty pan can be baked in an alternative. And I always give alternatives because I don't want people to feel they have to go out and buy something special. They could use any tube pan of 10 cup capacity. Mm-hmm. And, and what is one instrument that you just can't live without? Well, right now it's the Kraken, but, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but let me see. I think um, to be more practical, would it be a thermometer? No, not the thermometer. Um, oh, of course, my scale. Okay, yeah. Well, thermometer is a luxury. And I don't think it's that much of a luxury that you shouldn't get one because baking is all about cooling and heating and temperature control, and it'll make a huge difference. But if you just had one piece of equipment, it would be a scale. I so prefer weighing to measuring. In fact, I have a new mantra because people are always saying, well, measuring is so much easier. It's faster. It's more fun. You don't have to worry. I don't know why people are afraid of scales, but my combat recently, (laughs) I said combat, and it really is kind of fighting words. I mean what I say to defend weighing is that measuring is fine for people who content themselves with half measures. Oh, it's, I know it's kind of mean, but the thing is I want to encourage people to understand that weighing isn't for a scientific lab weighing in Europe. They all bake by scale Mm -hmm. because it's more accurate. It's faster and Mm -hmm. it's easier. So why not? You know, and the digital scales these days go so easily between grams and ounces. Mm-hmm. That's why I give all the volume and I give the grams and ounces. I was ounces just going to say you have, both of, you have both of the measurements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been doing all of my baking with a scale for a couple of years now. It makes such a difference. Oh, and, I'm and, preaching and, to the converted. And, well, yeah, but it, it is. It, I think of uh, cooking as art and baking as science, and obviously there's overlap between them. Um, but baking requires such precision at times. Well, it's not so much it requires it, but if you want to have the ultimate results, and why wouldn't you want to? I mean, you're spending money on hopefully the best ingredients, and you're doing, you're spending your time, and you're giving it to people you hopefully love. But I have to say that when people ask me what is the best thing to teach children in baking, baking period is the ideal cl- lesson because 
they get everything rolled into one. They get science and math and patience and creativity. One little boy said to me, if I count faster, will that, be, will that work so that you don't have to wait a minute and a half while you mix? So he was understanding a whole new concept, and this was a very bright child. Often I think, gee, can I speed up the counting? But no, you know, you have to submit to certain rules and understand these things. And anyone who says girls can't do math has never seen a woman baking a cake. I have to say that math is my weakness, which is why I don't have a single error in my books. I know I can't take for granted that I don't need a calculator. Mm. And I make sure to a million times proof everything in the book, you know, every single weight and volume and temperature. So easy, especially in the old days of publishing, when people typed and got paid by the page. See, I thought this would be wonderful. This is my first book I've done totally electronically, including the editing. But although it's wonderful as far as not having the transmission be inaccurate. The hard part is when you see the queries, which are the questions from the editor. Mm. They always have a lot of them because most of them aren't bakers, so that you, they ask maybe what the average person would ask mm-hmm. to have further clarity. Mm-hmm. So here you have this sidebar with all their queries and a million lines going from the text to the sidebar, which you have to follow. So it's not easy, but it's more accurate. So you said every, this is the first time you've worked electronic and everything, meaning you haven't, you didn't see pages that didn't send manuscript back would it oh yeah okay. but what i mean is the editing was done electronically oh, okay so and it, I, it used to be that i had to see it in the hard copy to be able to read now i can right. edit from a computer right. effortlessly but i have to say that when the pages came the laid out pages that's when the fetus becomes an embryo or is it vice versa embryo becomes <laughs> the way around yeah. uh, exactly because before that the book isn't all in parts and pieces and suddenly you see the pages and, and you realize yeah, what you have there yeah. you see what the pictures are going to look like in the font and and suddenly the the mistakes or the right. inconsistencies jump out at you. So talk to us about ovens. Oh, that's probably the most important thing of all. Right. Because I always say the oven is the common denominator of failure in baking. Mm. And that's because if people don't have their oven calibrated or if they bake too fast or too slow, it's not like you can put a cake in the oven and it says 40 to 50 minutes and your oven is baking slow. So you think, okay, I'll just bake it 60 minutes. But what happens is that the cake doesn't have the the right structure developed, so it's likely to fall. Or if it bakes too fast, it will be domed. So I don't think oven thermometers generally are that accurate. I finally found ones that I can recommend in the book. But if you don't want to get a thermometer, what's even more accurate is to see if a recipe of mine says 30 to 40 minutes and it's taking longer, you know that you have to turn up your oven a bit. Mm. Mm. If your oven is really out of whack, then call and somebody and have it calibrated. Right. And by the way, if you have convection and you can't turn it off, 25 degrees lower is the rule of thumb. I'm not talking about countertop convection ovens. Right. Because often you don't have to change that at all. Right. I mean, you get all these new ovens and there's so many bells and whistles, people don't even know they're supposed to turn it down for convection. Mm -hmm. And they wonder what's going wrong. Right. I get a million questions on the blog about that type of thing. Hmm. And who do you call to calibrate your your oven? You know, I've actually learned how to do it myself. Really? Tell us. Well, I can't. It's it's like flying a plane. It's like okay. it's like getting somebody to land a plane when right. they've never flown. Because each oven is different. I can do it on my oven. I can have mm-hmm. the pilot light. Most people don't even have pilot lights in the yeah, oven we anymore. Okay, well, I like to have my pilot light no higher than 120, because that means that I can stick chocolate in there, and I never have to chop chocolate. Mm-hmm. I just let it melt. That's only dark chocolate. White mm. chocolate needs to be stirred, and so does milk. But calibrating ovens... I, when I moved to New Jersey from New York, I brought my Wolf oven, which is mm. a commercial type of oven, and I had it converted to propane. 
And that usually takes two tries. But that was great. I brought, I called in somebody and did it. The only thing is that he didn't make it level. Now, make sure your oven is level because yes. I didn't notice it for the first six months because the front of the oven was fine. But then I was making a wedding cake for somebody. The back of the oven was sloped down, and my two 12-inch cakes, the first one was sort of salvageable, but the second layer that was in the back was so unlevel that I couldn't even level it. I would have had a half-inch high cake. And you know, usually when you make a wedding cake, you're working right to the last minute mm-hmm. right. because you want it to be as fresh as possible. So I was extremely upset, oh but I asked my associate, Woody, you know, what should we do? Because I knew that when something goes wrong, often it it multiplies, you know, it's right. like the domino effect. While you're wringing your hands, you mess up the next thing, like the buttercream. Mm-hmm. And he said, don't get upset about it. I'll level it later. For now, just go on, move on. And we that was probably the most beautiful cake I've ever made. So then I went and did the next thing, and it was perfectly level. What he did is we had to rebake the level, the, one of the layers, so he put a metal bar just to raise the back of the panel uh-huh. a bit. I mean, there's Clever. so many solutions that you can do, but you don't want to have to live that way. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So we were going to ask what your home kitchen is like, but it, it sounds like it is extremely well-equipped. Well, you know, for many years I worked in my living room. I turned the entire living room into a kitchen because I had a typical New York tiny microscopic kitchen and my dream I was always thinking what I'd want if I had a fully equipped kitchen one thing I didn't have was a professional vacuum sealer you know because I'm always storing nuts and different things that I get in huge quantity so if I'd gotten it years ago it would have been in the middle of the living room and my husband wouldn't have been too pleased about it so that's one of the big features of the new kitchen but what I did when I moved is I turned the entire basement into a baker's kitchen so on my first floor on the main floor is the regular kitchen and downstairs is the baker's kitchen no windows so I don't get distracted but also you can control temperature better when you don't have wow. windows, you know, so I have an air conditioner in my kitchen. I mean, this is a dream because that's the one place you desperately need it. Mm-hmm. And, and Especially when you, in the summer. And, right, exactly. And when you moved out to New Jersey, this is something you knew you wanted to do. I knew I had to do it also. Yeah. I mean, I had so much equipment because people are always sending me equipment to test. And since I'm such an equipment junkie, I can never give it up. So, you know. so, so does the uh, basement look like a commercial kitchen? With, I, semi. I think, semi. I'm going to be posting it on my blog, oh, actually. This Saturday is going to oh, be great. a posting, so you'll be able to see all the pictures. And it's really fun working in it because all the pictures for this book were taken initially to give to the stylist. And then Woody, my assistant, and I, we conspired to bake all of the cookie chapter, part of the cake chapter, and also part of the bread chapter. So as much as we could do ahead, we brought, because when we ended up at the location, which was in upstate New York in last November, we found two of the most expensive ovens, which I have one of upstairs, the Gagano, and both of them were bolted to the wall, not level. Yeah, so you couldn't shim it. You, know, you couldn't do anything. Right. So you, you know, the minute I leave even my living room kitchen that I had, I know I'm going to encounter things that are going to be a challenge. I can do it, but most people don't know how to adjust when they have things that don't work the way they should. Right, sure. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Rose Levy Barenbaum, author of The Baking Bible, who was just telling us about the importance of being able to improvise in an unfamiliar place or, or maybe even with an unfamiliar recipe. Um, and I had mentioned earlier, I think of baking as so specific and scientific. How do you improvise within those kinds of constraints? How do you mean by improvise? Um, I'm, you know, you were talking about working with uh, a different uh, different equipment, a new oven. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. if you're in somebody else's kitchen. When I moved into my last apartment, we didn't have a stove or an oven for a week and a half. And so I did all of my baking uh, in a rice cooker. <laughs> I, I, I learned uh, how to, and eventually we got a toaster oven, which would have been another. I see what uh, you mean by uh, improvise. Yeah. Another option. But also just, you know, you're halfway through a recipe. You didn't mise en place. And suddenly you realize, you know, you're out of something. Uh, you only have whole wheat flour instead of the white flour. <laughs> you know, how, how do you how do you how do you work around that while still sort of keeping the core truth of a recipe? When I lived in New York, I could just run out and get something. <laughs> well, there is always that. No, in fact, one time. I forgot to preheat the oven for a biscuit, which is a delicate cake that doesn't have a lot of leeway. And and rather than throw out the batter, because it takes at least 20 minutes to preheat an oven, I put it in and turned the oven on. And the heat, it was the best biscuit I ever made. That was a very nice surprise. (laughs) But where I was saying that the ovens were not level, the Gagano ones that we work with, I had to sit in front of it and turn it constantly to make sure. Not everything can be done that way because some things will fall. Right. But I had my eye on it. I was watching it the whole time. And if something isn't level, as I said, you can put a little bar under the pan to make mm-hmm. it work. Um, you just sort of fly by the seat of your pants when you're in situations. I was invited to visit one of my former students in Japan in Kyoto. And there they don't have ovens at all. It's an artisanal city and it's exquisite, but... It's not a baking culture, or at least it hasn't been. Right. And yeah, she the same thing with she, my relatives in uh, southern Italy. I they have, have stovetops, not really ovens. Huh. I didn't know that, because yeah. they're big bread bakers. In fact, a friend of mine from Sicily, she actually used to go to a community oven to bring her dough. This mm-hmm. is what people did. Right. And that's where they made the marks on the dough that had different shapes because it right. was kind of like the Irish fisherman knit so they could identify the body. But right. in this case, they can identify <laughs> the bread. <laughs> you know, people didn't have ovens. Right. So uh, having an oven in Japan or having a toaster oven, the problem was that it was burning on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And if she raised it up one level, it burned at the top. So I said, when I come, I'll teach you how to bake in a toaster oven. Because I knew right away what we had to do. From having gone on the QE2, mm-hmm. having to do a demo, and they only had deck ovens, which means things baked not on a rack, but right on the oven, and everything was burning. Double pan to the rescue. Mm-hmm. You know, put one pan on the other, leave right. it at the bottom. That protects it, kind of like a cushioning effect, because oh, it wow. catch, catches, captures air in between. Right. And then it doesn't brown on the top. Say your pie is browning too quickly on the top. Either, well, either you put a piece of foil on or you lower it. And I even like baking on the floor of the oven for pies to get a crisp bottom crust. Hmm. But then I like to use the first time, if I'm using an oven I'm not familiar with, a glass Pyrex pie plate. Mm -hmm. Because you can see when it browns, you just lift it up the next level. You can move pies around. You can't move cakes around. Mm. Cakes can be turned around after three quarters of the baking time. And there's so many tips like that that I've put in this book. You know, for cookies, for example, people don't think it's necessary to make each cookie the same size. But guess what happens when you don't? The bigger ones take longer to cook. So you have a compromise of either underbaked cookies or overbaked cookies, unless you start taking out the smaller ones before the bigger ones are done. You know, so this is there's a wow. reason for all these things. And of course, if you don't follow it, you'll still get good things, but you'll get better things if you understand what you're doing. 
So what would you say to someone who um, might be intimidated to uh, to bake? Someone who, like myself, does a lot of cooking, but doesn't do a lot of baking. Because I think it's going to be kind of time-consuming. I have to get the ingredients exactly right. And whatever I'm going to bake just isn't going to turn out all that great or as gloriously as, as it might. So, Mark, isn't it lucky you have this book now? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so which recipe from here? Well, I have to say that some of the recipes have several components, but... Generally, the components are wonderful on their own, mm. you know, and plus they're mix and match. Right. For example, there's a cream cheesecake that I absolutely adore. You can see in the picture how f- even it is. And I've loved cream cheese and pie crust. I think it makes the best flavor in a pie crust. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what would it do in a cake? And it's really amazingly good. And the topping is a lemon curd, but a very mm-hmm. special one for which you need a blender or an immersion blender. But it's wonderful without that lemon curd. Mm. Or even if you get lemon curd in a jar and spread it on. Right. Lemon curd that's manufactured like tip tree is made from lemons from Morocco in small batches. Right. It's better than most people's lemon curd they make at home. I'm not against products if they're as good or better. And then, of course, the cookies. There are a lot of really easy cookies to do. Right. And one of my favorite things that's really easy and you'll love is the Wicked Good Ganache. It's so good I gave it that special name because... Tell us about it. Well, it's... It's actually combined with the chocolate Pavarotti. That was what I dedicated to Pavarotti, right? Nice. And it's a chocolate cake in which I put white chocolate because it's such a wonderful emulsifier that you get this moist, great texture. Hmm. In fact, I should call it the black velvet because I have a white velvet, I have a red velvet, and this is kind of the black velvet. <laughs> the Pavarotti appealed to me more. <laughs> sure. And then the... the um, ganache right. has a bit of cayenne pepper in. I give a range because not everybody wants a big hit. Right. But when I made this for my 50th high school reunion, I went to music and art high school and we went back to the, the school on the hill where it was between City College right. and I heard all the students, all my colleagues who you know are now <laughs> into their own professions and everybody was saying it sings in the mouth and I thought, oh, my, oh, my friends, they got it. You know, Even the art students. <laughs> Because, of course, everybody who was in art had to take music, and everybody who was in music took an art course. It was mm-hmm. the most wonderful school. So I actually didn't make the Pavarotti. I made the Domingo, dedicated to Placido Domingo. Of course. And, but I used the Wicked Good Ganache and thought that would be perfect for it. If if you were to do a cake uh, uh, on inspired by Enrico Caruso, what <laughs> might that be? <laughs> Give me time, and the next book may have Great, it. Great, excellent. Well, tell me, what about Enrico Caruso do you think stands out the most? Um, I think the, the, the high range of his voice, especially on the Edison, uh, I'm, I'm not the Edison, but on the Victor Victrola record, those, those, mm. those records as they're recorded, um, it's at once hearty, though high, almost like a high lonesome in ways. Mm. Um, And there's something about that voice that I really like, especially, I mean, through those recordings. I never heard Enrico Caruso sing, I think on recording, yes, but coincidentally, I made a little mistake in this book. I talked about Pavarotti and how he had the most unreal voice where he could reach the E above high C. Mm -hmm. It's the most eerie sound I've ever heard coming out of a human being. And somebody wrote to me, because I put that on the blog, and they said it's the F above high C. And so I told my editor, we have to change it in the next printing. She said, really? Is that really necessary? And I said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot shortchange my whole musical note. Absolutely. And and really, the difference between, speaking as someone who's who's taken some singing lessons, the difference between E above high C and F above high C is is worth noting. Thank you. It is a whole note, right? It, It really, it, yeah. 
it's a lot of people cannot make even that little extra uh, push mm -hmm. to get up to the yeah. higher note. So yeah, I, I would say that. That's In fact, there's a very funny story about how when he was singing, this is I think Il Parate. I'm not sure now, but anyway, he was singing with Joan Sutherland, and afterwards, his father said. Luciano, you have so much talent. Why did you let Joan uh, Rene, no, it wasn't really funny, Joan Sutherland sing that note for you? Because <laughs> he couldn't believe even of his own son, and he too is a tenor. Mm -hmm. With a Domingo, I called it the tenor of chocolate cakes. The Fleming is the soprano of golden cakes. Right. Right. But the Pavarotti is the Pavarotti. <laughs> Meanwhile, oh, as an alto, I, I uh, hold to myself a hope that someday there will be an alto cake for me to make. Oh, Rose. <laughs> I'll be thinking about the Caruso and the alto for, to continue this thing. Oh, we can even do Maria Callas. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you'll be touring to promote the book. How does that work? I've been to a lot of readings, but I've never been to a reading given by a cookbook author. I, do you mm. read the recipes? Do you talk about the recipes? One of my favorite things, because really I was a writer before I was a baker. I mean, I was born as a writer. People have often said to me, I want to write. And I said, well, then why don't you? <laughs> you know, a writer cannot help but to write. I, mm -hmm. I wrote letters. I wrote a diary. And the more you write, the better that you get. Right. So I love writing the head notes, the stories behind the stories, the dedication or the cre to give credit to whom the recipe came from. Mm -hmm. And the only time I ever actually read from the book was in Berkeley. And I forget exactly why, but they said that I could. And since I have a lot of stories, that was one in particular. I, it was a bit outrageous, and they said I could let it fly in Berkeley, even though there were children. <laughs> I'm not going to do it now. <laughs> Luckily, I can't remember. I'm but generally, fascinated. the way a, a book tour works, I just came from Wellesley, actually. I never could have gotten into Wellesley in college had I applied from high school, but I got in with this book. <laughs> um, two other authors, not cookbook authors, one who's a famous essayist and the other who wrote a book, that was a story that took place in Minnesota. They were both marvelous speakers. And so I was so happy, even though it meant speeding back for the book launch, which was very you know, the same day that we spoke. But uh, I got to tell the story of the book production. And I actually have 14 phases of book production that's posted on my blog. Mm -hmm. And it took three days to condense it down to a 20-minute talk. And I had a speed to go through it. Because it's so fascinating. I forget with each book. And each book, it changes with technology. But I thought I'd want to share this with people who think writing a cookbook is so easy. They have no idea. Mm. And I discovered myself that the first seven parts of production was not were not with the publisher. They were with Woody and me. Mm -hmm. I used to be with just me when I was working alone. And then the, exactly the, the seven later parts were once you give it to the publisher and other people start getting involved, which can be very painful because you suddenly realize that you've written two times the size of the book, you know, that cuts are going to have to be mm -hmm. made. And actually what happened in this case was that I had to cut the entire wedding cake chapter, but I did it in exchange for having everything else in to make it a complete book. Right. I decided that in order to be the Baking Bible, it didn't have to have a wedding cake chapter. And they're also dying for me to do a wedding cake book, mm -hmm. which I didn't want to do <laughs> because I don't like big things. Mm -hmm. you know? But then I realized that it didn't have to have millions of wedding cakes, just the ones that really work. And what I mean by work is that a wedding cake has to be delicious, but it also has to be beautiful, which means that you need at least three days to work on it. And so mm. that limits what kind of cake you want to put in that will stay fresh for that. Right. Sure. And we've come up with so far five, but then there are a lot of things, occasions surrounding a wedding, such as the groom's cake, the bachelor party, the right. wedding shower. And some of the things that had to be cut are going to be in that, too. But to my delight, when we went into the laid-out pages, that's when the designer discovered that she could put 
I could put more things back in without looking oh, cluttered. Wow. Right. And I think this is, she did the design of, of Rose's Heavenly Cakes that was the book preceding this. And I think it's, this is much better even. Because mm-hmm. even though there's tons of information, it doesn't look in the way. It looks very clear. So we just have uh, a few more minutes. I was wondering if you would talk about some of the, the challenges that you've faced as a, as a baker, as an author, um, some, something big that you've really had to work to overcome. It's not so much overcoming, it's the proofing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, the proofing is endless. And I think of it as a metaphor for life because you tend to see things as they ought to be. Your brain fills in what's missing or what's wrong. You know, so no matter how many people looked at this, and there a lot of people did, and Woody and I actually read, I read it aloud while he was in Minnesota looking at the manuscript. Mm-hmm. He didn't move to New, to, <laughs> to New Jersey, Pennsylvania area until closer to the book production. Mm-hmm. But it gave me the opportunity to hear how the words sound, because I think the ideal kind of writing for instructional writing, which is the biggest challenge, is to have a combination of the audio, audio, and the reading. Mm-hmm. It's, di- it's sure. different, and you yeah. don't want either one or the other. So to make sure that that worked, and also to make sure that there was consistency. Mm-hmm. And I like to have a kind of transparency in a, a written recipe because people are intimidated by baking, even though yeah. they don't need to be. So, in my opinion, if you write correctly and all the information. So the, thing, the way to make it transparent is to make sure that you have, for example, macros, so that when you say something one way in one page for a recipe, you say it the same way 100 pages later. Unconsciously, people see when things are different, and they start getting jumbled. Mm-hmm. You know, so we made many macros, but then in this particular book, there were four different subjects. You know, there are pies, there's bread, there's cookies. It's right. different language, too. And then the worst thing were the numbers. Having volume, ounces, and grams means that you That's have to proof everything. Right. Because it's different if you're making a lamb chop and you mess up and you overbake, <laughs> overcook it. It's still edible. But if you mess up a, a baked good and the texture's off, it ruins the flavor as well. Right. So there were a lot of cha- challenges. But I think that in the end, I was, so, I was ready to give it in, I think, six months before it was due, which is unheard of in book publishing. And the sure. editor and the publisher said, D- don't think we're going to speed it up by moving it ahead one year. And I said, no, I just want to give you a lot of time. This is a very complicated book with lots of pictures. I want lots of production time. And guess what? They, moved, they were so thrilled with it, they moved it up a year. <laughs> and <laughs> and then, they still did a great job. And, and, and then you were on deadline. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. But the, the best thing is that if there was a correction to make, even though it was late in the game and it cost more money, they never hesitated. Everybody kind of fell in love with this book. Even the ed- other editors in the house, they were wow. just so excited. Every time I go to an event and see somebody, they'd say, we're all so excited. And I said, really? You know, I was not expecting to have that kind of enthusiasm. And you've been mentioning your blog. Do you want to tell us where to find it so that people can hunt down all those photos and anecdotes? Oh, thank you for asking, Rose, because, you know, actually, if people put in either of my names, they would find it, but nobody can ever spell my name, (laughs) Barenbaum. So it's realbakingwithrose.com. That sounds very easy to spell and easy to remember. Well, Rose, Rose, thank you so much. What a pleasure it is to have you here. Thank you, Rose. Thank you so much. I've loved it, too. (laughs) We've been talking with Rose Levy Barenbaum. You can find her book, The Baking Bible, in stores right now. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Editor Claire Swanson talks about the hottest cookbooks of the year, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Michaela the Prince, and I'm the author of Taking Flight, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW News Editor Claire Swanson is here to tell us all about the year's top cookbooks. Hi, Claire. Hi, guys. So the two of you, um, and and perhaps some other fine cookbook-loving people at PW, have put together a list of cookbooks for our 2014 best books, and I was wondering if you would go into that a bit. Yeah, of course. Mark, you can take the lead on that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I also want to mention that uh, Claire is our new editor as of three weeks now, I think, three or four weeks. Yeah, Claire, beginning of Octo- the, October, yeah. Right, for the Cooking the Books newsletter, which uh, she took over from John Sellers. And um, she's been having a lot of uh, great pieces in there. Uh, interview with Ina Garden, who is, uh, Claire, I don't know if you know this yet, if you took a look at the uh, list, but she She's a top. Uh, uh, she's landed the number one spot in our nonfiction bestseller list for next week. I saw that. Yes, I did see that. Did you yep. see the number of copies? It was pretty. I impressive. did. It's pretty astounding. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Unstoppable. So yeah. So we ended up. We 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 change it around a little bit every. Um, uh, every year, depending on how many other books in the lifestyle section we have, but we ended up with uh, five uh, this time. And uh, Ina Garden's uh, "Make It Ahead: A Barefoot Contessa Cookbook" was one, uh, and that seemed to be kind of a, a, an easy one, just because whenever she comes out with a book, uh, you know, just people love it. She appeals to such a broad. A uh, variety of people, and uh, her, her cookbooks smart. She got you know in this one we say she's got smart solutions with more than uh, seventy five recipes for making advanced dishes. So that was one of them. The next one is uh, Mexico, the cookbook, which is uh, came out from uh, Fiden Cookbook, and uh, they do such wonderful books. I mean, just beautifully designed. I mean, Claire, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, that really is. It's absolutely beautiful from the cover throughout. It's, it's a gorgeous and it's a hefty, it's a hefty book, but it's it's really well put together. Yeah, and it's. I mean, this is really the definitive guide. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the like, tome. Mm-hmm. And uh, Margarita Carillo Aronte is the author. So, so we 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 picked that one, and we had a couple books uh, uh, we were we were looking at um, it, we had a whole slew of uh, baking books and we just had um, Rose Levy Barenbaum on the show talking about the uh, her um, uh, baking Bible and it was really wonderful Claire she talked about her most important uh, instrument in the kitchen is the um, scale Oh, interesting. For a baker, I could, yeah, I yeah. could see that. Mm-hmm. Rather than measuring. and Precision. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. And she also talked about fine-tuning her oven, <laughs> calibrating <laughs> her oven. So anyway, but um, uh, we have another baker on the list, and that's uh, Baking Chez Moi, uh, Recipes from My Paris Home to Your Home Anywhere, uh, Dory Greenspan. And uh, this one is a baking book, uh, kind of a baking tour of Paris. Um, and then we have plenty more. Uh, Otto Lenge's book uh, from Ten Speed. And it's kind of a sequel to his 2011 bestseller, Plenty. And that was kind of a uh, surprise one, would you say? 
A surprise pick for this year? No, the, the, I'm sorry, surprise bestseller for two, uh, three years ago. The oh, yeah, book. Yeah. yeah, making vegetables very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. and uh, this one, uh, and then the next one, the last one is Gabrielle Hamilton's uh, Prune, uh, which was we gave a star review. I think all of these we'd given star reviews, but it's just been getting picked up everywhere mm-hmm. uh, based on her uh, restaurant Prune uh, in the East Village. Um, and anyway, it's that's that. Those are the five books that we had on the bestseller list. Yeah, and we were able to speak to you know four out of the five right. cookbooks that you chose or authors of those cookbooks. So it was fun to get insights on some of you know the best cookbooks of the year. Yeah, and um, Gabrielle Hamilton especially gave us a great interview. And you know, because Prune turned fifteen this year, and so people had been kind of clamoring for this book since the restaurant opened up. It's She's so popular, and of right. course, her memoir in 2011 made her even more so. It was so well received. Yeah. Um, and the book itself is, I mean, it's very cool, right? Wouldn't you say, Mark? Like oh. the the way it's put together, it makes you feel like you're part of her kitchen. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. With yeah. with uh, with uh, directions to uh, get this out. So, you know. Plate this quickly. Don't let it sit, people. Right. Or uh, I loved it. Uh, there's a, a dish for pistachios, uh, fresh figs, and serrano ham. And uh, she says, if the uh, uh, FDA comes in, put the ham in the oven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her voice comes through in these yeah. tiny little um, instructive bursts. And yep. it's, it's really neat. And, you know, she had told us that because she told her kind of personal food story in her memoir sure. you know you you get the anecdotes growing up and what it meant to her and you you got that in in her prose that she didn't feel the need to put in headnotes mark which you had noted in your write-up um it's very much about the food yeah. and it's it's massive it's almost 600 pages but she managed to make it all about the food yeah exactly there's no forward afterward there's not even an index yeah exactly <laughs> so um for forgive me claire uh, i have actually never gotten around to subscribing to cooking the books i keep meaning to um uh, but uh, talk a little bit about what that newsletter is like what it looks like it's, it's an email newsletter like it uh, is yeah and um so we cover the best-selling cookbooks when we get those lists in um we do q a's with uh authors we've started to be pulling graphics from you know food books that are especially graphic heavy and then you know pulling cool images that people might enjoy um yeah it's 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 pretty much everything that's going on in the uh cookbook world and 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 we're trying to insert a lot of the people you know with talking to the authors and um, publishers of, of of cookbooks or recently spoke to the publisher of Thug Kitchen, which was not only a big and 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 best selling book, but there was sort of it was sort of mired in a little controversy. So we're sort of covering covering the waterfront on what's going on with cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And it, this is interesting, not just to people in cookbook publishing, but also just to home cooks. I think so. Yeah, I think anyone that loves to cook or I mean even loves to eat, um, I, I think it would be interesting to them. They would, you know, there's what's going on with food trends is, is often reflected in in the co- in the cookbooks that you know the publishers are putting out. So, actually, wait, which direction does that go? And are there cookbooks that start trends, or is it mostly responding to trends? You know, I don't know, Mark. What do you think about that? I feel like it picks up on the trends, but I, yeah. I, it honestly could go either way. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we're we're looking at um, trends that have started a few years ago, and 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 that's basically been the blog to book trend mm-hmm. uh, with so many hitting the bestseller list. I mean, you, you know, years ago is you know. It's, now years ago, but it doesn't seem like it's Pioneer Kitchen. <laughs> I'm sorry, the Pioneer Woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then more recently, the Smitten Kitchen. And so, 
even back then, I remember talking with editors, uh, book editors, acquiring editors, and they said, yeah, that seems to be dying out. It seems like we've tapped all that. But again and again on our bestseller list, we've, we're seeing books that have been bought from blogs. And it's basically because the recipes seem to work really well, but most yep. importantly, it's the voice, I think, mm-hmm. that, that carries Very voice-driven. Yeah. yeah. And, and, especially and, and approachable. If, and approachable, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And even this, you know, earlier this fall, it was actually before I took over, but... Um, Cooking the Books had taken a look at four uh, webbed cookbook debuts, right. you know, first-time authors. So it's it's not a new trend, but it's, it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. No, exactly. And that included uh, Seriously Delish, uh, yep. uh, Jessica Merchant, and, um, I mean, several others. Um, the Kitchen Cookbook, I, b- I believe that just came out uh, yeah. last week from Clarkson Potter. Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, with the uh, Kitchen in France, the Mimi Thorison. I think that might have been a blog at first as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was the uh, Skinny Taste Cookbook, yep. which is at number two on the cookbook list, uh, on our bestseller list this week. And uh, 100 Days of Real Food, How We Did It, How We Learned. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's, there's quite a few that have been uh, coming up. And, and chefs have always been personalities, uh, especially, I mean, going all the way back to Julia Child. You know, right. it's, it's not just about the recipes or the cuisine. It's about the person behind it. Absolutely. And I think that's where that, that element of voice comes in and, yeah. and approachability and wanting to be in the kitchen with them, essentially. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And we were talking about this before. Another trend that has seemed to stop being a trend is now entering mainstream cooking is vegan and gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not really a subset anymore, Mark, right? right? I mean, it's, it's, I look at so many, and I'm seeing, especially as, you know, publishers are looking ahead to new year, new you kinds of things, lots of gluten-free, mindful eating, um, quinoa diet, those, those sorts of things. They're coming in, you know, fast and furious. Yeah. Do you, do you really see those things being conflated? I mean, for me, for example, I have a dairy allergy. My, one of my partners has a gluten allergy. So for us, it's, it's not eating healthy in the sense right. of trying to be disciplined. It's eating healthy in the sense of not eating poison. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, so, so do you see those, like, is, is gluten-free eating still considered kind of a fad um, or, or a way of just going on a diet, losing some weight? Or it, does that all get mixed together? I, I think so. I, I think it does a little, yeah. And, yeah. and there are certain cookbooks that are born out of, of people with you know medical conditions, and we've, we've seen that as well. But I yeah. do think they all kind of get put in the same pot. Um, so yeah. they each have their own uh, their own bent. Right, exactly. And I think vegan is making its way into so many cookbooks as an alternative to something else. So it's not that you just, you know, you can have a, you can come across a cookbook and there would be a recipe that happens to be vegan. And should you want to to do that? And of course, that was, uh, I remember... Um, Mark Bittman's book, VB6, uh, two years ago came out, you know, eating vegan before six. And here's someone who's been cooking and, 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 and posting recipes for, for a decade. And he's decided to, to turn towards a vegan lifestyle, but not entirely, right. but just before six. And after that, you eat not really whatever you want, but, but not necessarily vegan. 
Right. So that's so, so yeah. that's so interesting because um, almost all of the vegan cooking communities that I hang out in for dairy-free recipes mm. are full of ethical vegans who would not dream of eating any animal products ever, ever, ever. And that's just a, a completely yeah. different approach to the the concept of vegan cooking, vegan eating. Yeah, and I th- but I but I think with the vegan and the uh, and the gluten and Claire, you'd mentioned the quinoa. Mm-hmm. That's all part of a what I think is a is a trend towards a healthier though flavorful diet. Yeah, I think that's the I guess that's a theme that we're seeing now too is that you you sort of don't have to sacrifice flavor for Right. um you know to to be just be conscientious about what you eat and if you choose if you're vegan or you know you're gluten-free that there are ways to you know to pack flavor into that right yeah i I feel like the the idea that diet food or healthy food is flavorless food was really a product of going low fat because fat conducts flavor so much absolutely and and now that fat is not being demonized the way that it once was i think it is a lot easier to get those flavorful foods right exactly and and as it turns out if you if you you can eat full fat things like yogurt mm-hmm. uh, and then just not eat other things and that the fat is actually good for you. <laughs> you know, It's yeah. good for your body. Your body needs it. Um, These notions say. of what's healthy are yeah, changing, kind of changing all the time. Yeah, ever evolving. So what about, I, I'm trying to think of other trends we've been seeing or saw, any did, books. We talked about that sort of, um, it, it's not a new one, but it's sort of a fun little batch that resurged again in this October and that was a TV show cookbook tie-ins. Right. I was going to um, ask about that, talking yeah. about yeah. personality chefs. Yeah, because I remember, I remember when the True Blood. Well, actually, this so is this t- is actually uh, like you know, True Blood uh, scripted cookbook. TV shows. Yeah, scripted TV shows. So oh, wow. cookbooks coming yeah. out based on like True Blood, the True Blood cookbook. Oh, but right. I love stuff. I, you know, when I was a kid, I had the Encyclopedia Brown cookbook. Oh yeah, and I loved the, all oh, the Encyclopedia Brown mysteries, and every mystery right. would have a recipe at the yeah. end of it. It was yeah. the most adorable thing, and I just I thought it was. I mean, it's such that. a gimmick, but right. but it, you it, know, it's if sort you love a show. You yeah. know, the the complete fan. You can you can yeah. you know eat what they're eating on the show. And Mark, we had seen a couple of years ago the the Soprano cookbook, right? right. Was, it was a bestseller. But in October, we had uh, let's see, the Orange is the New Black cookbook, right? Um, we had the Port- Portlandia, the cookbook, right, which, right, right, and there was a parody cookbook. So it wasn't sanctioned by the producers or um, uh, you know of the show, but it was called a uh, Baking Bad. So it was <laughs> right, right. By, by Walter Wheat, right. um, oh, right, out right. from Hachette Books. Right, it's right. it's uh, very playful. Uh, it doesn't have sort of the inside look that the other ones do because they are they're written by insiders. But um, right. yeah, very fun. Yeah, and not good quite, gift book. Right, exactly, and not quite a TV tie-in book, but a book tie-in book, uh, and that's uh, Fifty Shades of uh, the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, spinoff, The Chicken. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Whereas, um, I, I'm remembering that a couple of years ago, there was a Game of Thrones companion cookbook yep. that, uh, A Feast of Ice and Fire, that I actually was really intrigued by, because food is so central um, to, to the show and to the books. Exactly. Which, yeah, which I, I love. think that's, that's why... Um, the Portlandia one especially works really well because it's sort of a, it, it, it's a satirical series about kind of the hyper local hipster movement in Portland. Right. And, and, you know, obviously a large part of that is about food and um, restaurants, that sort of thing. So it's, it's very funny. It has little um, 
sidebars on you know how to choose a bed and breakfast or how to behave properly at a communal table that, that kind of oh, thing yeah well claire thank you so much for uh talking with us you guys thanks for having me on it was and, fun and oh, for our list- a pleasure and for our listeners uh if you want the cooking the books newsletter I encourage you to go to the site click on newsletters and subscribe to cooking the books newsletter it's free yeah, and uh, we have many other newsletters too. We should we should start bringing on more PW guests to oh, talk that's about right. this. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, Claire, thank you very much. Always good to have you here. Thanks, and guys. Now, a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Corey Doctorow, an occasional PW columnist and also the author of Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 